So I was reading the New York Times uh, last week, and I came across this article about uh, this podcast called The Blind Boy Podcast. And I've been fascinated uh, by this show ever since. Um, the The host, he, he comes from Limerick, Ireland. He talks in this very low, amazing voice. And he has this, this tinkling piano keys playing behind him. And it's the most amazing experience. He's an incredibly funny guy, an incredibly smart guy. Uh, I wish I could meet him at some point. Uh, he, it's nothing to do with marketing, nothing to do what, what, with what this show is about. But if you ever get a chance, you got to check it out. The Blind Boy podcast. He actually, the most, one of the most intriguing things about him is that he actually wears a plastic bag over his head when he's at events in public. He doesn't want to be recognized. He doesn't want fame. And it's just this amazing original show and this amazing original story behind this guy. Uh, check it out if you can. Anyway, back to today. Welcome to On Strategy Showcase. I'm Fergus O'Carroll in Chicago. Here's a clip from today's episode that will sort of set the tone for our conversation. I think... Everyone will probably be doing similar questions on a quant questionnaire. This is an example, so I don't know. If, but if you looked at Unilever and you looked at P&G, they'll probably be asking the same questions in the same format, in the same groups, with the same audience, getting the same answers. Then they'll probably be, you'll be doing a lot of kind of Google planning, reading the same reports, the same, same desk research, getting the same answers. So the culmination of that it's you and your competitors are going to get exactly the same answers. So you're going to go into exactly the same spaces. That's uh, Steve Lacey. He's today's guest for episode one of our four-part series, Outside In Thinking. So why this series? Isn't it obvious that as strategists and marketers, we should be ensuring that the outside voices, realities, and challenges of our target audiences are represented in strategy development? You may be thinking, I use research, uh, I use quant studies. Uh, I've been you know, getting them from sources that are credible within my industry or within my category, and I've been doing that for many times. Well, that's exactly the potential problem and why we're doing this series. It feels like we're all fishing in the same fishbowl, that we're reading the same research reports, we're referencing the same quant studies, we're asking the same questions. And as a result, we're generating strategies on ideas that feel very similar, or at least that's the high risk in behavior such as this. So I wanted to bring some outside voices onto the show to talk about the various ways we can get out of this trap because we have the opportunity to shake things up if we want to. And as a result, build brands and more brands and, and marketing communications people will actually connect with. Now, not enough planners and clients are setting the expectation for different they want risk-free and familiar, and I get that. Uh, the problem is they get risk-free familiar work as a result and risk-free underwhelming results. This can't be the ambition we all have. Some brands are shaking it up and they're to be applauded for that. Uh, some of them are exploring new ways and experimenting with different directions and with different um, inputs, and we need more of that, and we need a lot more of them. So this is a series we uh, have co-created with the planning department. Uh, they're the sponsor 
of this uh, of this series, and it's because it's something that really uh, they believe in as a consultancy. And if you have an idea uh, that you'd like us to possibly co-create a, spirit, a series around and sponsor, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, you can reach us at hello at onstrategyshowcase.com, or you can download our 2023 sponsor kit on the homepage uh, of our site at onstrategyshowcase.com. So we're joined for the introduction to this first episode by the co-founder of the Manchester, England-based The Planning Department, uh, and uh, I'm excited to have them as a sponsor of this four-episode series. Welcome, Steve. Hi, Fergus. So it's um, it's it's a really interesting topic. This idea of outside thinking, and and I think like many people who've been in the industry for a couple of years, I've often thought about how has our sort of collective thinking become so insular. I think it's a problem that the advertising industry is always grappled with, because if you think about the demography of an agency, it's it tends to be pretty homogenous. It's pretty young, younger than most of society. It's more metropolitan, probably holds more progressive sort of liberal values and points of view, it tends to be university educated. And if you look outside the window, that's not representative of most of society. So the challenge that agencies have is in opening up to a broader perspective and not presuming that their worldview is shared by the rest of the nation. And what we're saying in this series is we always have to be conscious of the fact that we have to be including the voices of real customers, real audiences, and that we're not just advertising to ourselves. I think that's that's right, because I think it's it's okay to be unrepresentative of broader society if you recognize that and acknowledge it from the outset and build in time, process and methodology to overcome those limitations. And that's about then proactively building in a way of representing the voices that you're not representing within the agency. It's uh, Stephen McCarron. Thank you, man, for uh, for sponsoring this series and for for your um, your thoughts today. We'll see you in the next episode. Thank you, Fergus. Thanks for having me. We'll be right back. This series is sponsored by The Planning Department, a new breed of strategy agency that lets you access a world-class planning department as and when you need it. Think of it as having a planning department without the year-round overhead. Based in the UK, they're a group of researchers and strategists spread across the globe with diverse proven experience across all major categories. As outside voices, they bring fresh, objective perspective to brand and business problems. So if you're interested in having world-class brand and communication strategists on your business, be sure to connect with them because the best ideas happen when you bring the outside in. Learn more at theplanningdepartment.co.uk. That's theplanningdepartment.co.uk. Now back to the show. Tell us about the outsiders. Number one, I love that name. Uh, Where did that come from? And tell us about what it is that you guys do. So the outsiders is that's a really fantastic question. So so it actually come from a from a brainstorm with a really really smart planner called called Jamie Jamie Inham who used to be at BNB and uh, Weber Shanwick and, and we were talking about how to create an interesting kind of com- company uh, and I'll talk more about how I kind of got there in in a sec and he was like 
you know what? The the company should represent who you are, and that is an outsider. And I thought that was a really, really interesting kind of premise. So who am I? So I'm I'm older, I'm kind of in my kind of 50s. I'm disabled. I've got what's called a lobster hand, which looks like a hook. I've got a missing fibula in one bones and uh, a, a shortening of a fibula, which means my legs are kind of bow. And then I've got two toes on one and four on the other. Come from a working class background. So I was brought up in, in, in a council estate. Um, and when I was born, the, the doctors uh, said I wouldn't walk. And my mum kind of encouraged me to walk and, and she'd be spat on in the street. And people say, how can you do that to a d- disabled child? Also, my dad's from an Irish traveller background. And I'm also neurodiverse, so I'm I'm very dyslexic as well. So, so all those things in many ways made me feel an outsider of kind of society. So, my premise was really to create an agency that kind of allows you to bring the outside kind kind of kind of in. And my background before that is I was in advertising, and I, you know, I was the outsider in advertising in many ways. So there was not many kind of role models. There was not many kind of other disabled people and I was probably one of the first people to kind of enter with disability. So I worked on really big campaigns that really kind of changed kind of people's behaviour and and that gave me an obsession with kind of behaviour and I'm interested in cultural insight that really makes a difference to kind of people's lives. I'm interested in hard to reach audiences so I spoke to prisoners, domestic abusers, crack cocaine, heroin users, those on the far right, those on the tipping point of Islamic extremism, teenage mums, really, really kind of difficult audiences. Love and embrace diversity from a diverse audience myself. So understanding women, LGBTQ+, disability, ageism, what are those kind of barriers, how they, how can they be kind of broken down? And then coming from a working class background, it is the working class are really kind of ignored. And I kind of call them the, the mass mainstream. And, and they're a neglected kind of audience. And often they've 30, 40% of the kind of population and, and no one in really kind of takes takes them kind of seriously. So I really wanted to advocate their position. So given all of that uh, experience, were there things that either frustrated you about the way planning was being conducted in other shops or things that you wanted to do differently? One of my kind of frustrations, especially as a planner and, and, and with advertising in, in general, is that I think we're coming to a place which I call kind of fishbowl ideas where you get a brief, you get a pitch, you go onto kind of Google, your competitors are probably going on Google and everyone's kind of coming up with the same insights. So my whole ethos is about how can we kind of smash that, that kind of fishbowl? How can we do things kind of differently? And in what ways can we kind of approach that? And I think, I think there's several kind of kind of ways that I kind of look at. And I suppose there's four, in a way, kind of principles. The first one is to look at kind of culture and identify big kind of cultural insights. So I work globally as well as in the UK, and that can be what is the emotion of disgust? And from that, that led to the Plenty Christmas campaign. So I spent time not just doing ethnography, but also speaking to uh experts and academics and sociologists and semioticians to really understand that emotion. What is perfectionism? So it would be another project I worked on. So a lot of women, especially when they have babies, 
there's this quest of kind of perfectionism and, and not just women it's a it's a general kind of kind of disease and how do we break down kind of perfectionism so that people aren't constantly kind of punishing themselves and striving for something they can't achieve it could be understanding modern family and what's modern family and what's happening in the in the space of kind of modern family or understanding the cost of living crisis and how for the first time middle class as well as working class audiences have to manage kind of decline when i think of ethnography i've always thought of it as a one-on-one methodology right where you're you're for example going into somebody's home or you're you're sort of writing along as they conduct various activities or, or whatever the the general theme is that you're trying to explore uh, Absolutely. It, it, yours is almost yours is bigger than that because I mean when you're looking at larger cultural movements or societal sort of uh, points of view on topics, you've got to be at the you've got to be at the the one on one the qual you've got to be at the quant you've got to be at all levels right. So 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 there's four approaches to what I do, and you're absolutely right. So for big kind of cultural insight. We, we blend methodologies because you have to blend me- methodologies. You have to understand the cultural kind of space and where that's kind of going. And then you, it's good to understand the behavioural space. So, so that's one element. I think the next three are much more ethnographic kind of base. So w- one of the big areas I do a lot of work around is what I call rest, uh, kind of restoration of dignity. So that's really getting getting around stigma and shame and what's driving those those elements. So it could be someone with a kind of gambling kind of addiction. It could be someone who's got a drug addiction. It could be someone who's kind of got incontinence and understanding how that affects them. So really breaking down those kind of elements. The next one is really kind of what I call bringing the outside in. And for that, you might use cultural experts, but you also use kind of semi-ethnography. So that's understanding worlds that, as, as as researchers and planners, we're often really, really kind of distanced from and we don't we don't understand. So really going into different worlds. And I can talk, that's really an ethnographic approach. So that's where I will go into kind of housing estates. I will live with people for, for a little while to really understand what's going on. But it also can be something kind of small. And this is where I think ethnography is really, really important, actually, because I think we have an obsession in many ways with the big, big, big idea. And actually, this is something I learned very much from AMV. And it's it's not always the big ideas. Sometimes it can be the small things about how someone behaves and what someone does that then can be elevated up into something bigger. What was your role on the Raise Your Arches work for McDonald's and Leo Burnett? Because they gave you a ton of credit. Can you just in a, in a minute or two share what you guys did specifically to help inform that work? I mean, I think the first thing to say is it's so lovely of them to give me so much credit because that's quite unusual sometimes as a researcher, yeah. So I think that's it's, they're beautiful and they, they've just been such great kind of advocates. And, and I think my team and i think i have to include i have to include my other team here peak who did a lot of the kind of films with me and also house 51 this guy ian murray who works on it as well he's just just an absolutely fantastic kind of kind of brain so so it's a real kind of team effort and what, what was interesting there was it was all about kind of they 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 kind of done done some research and 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 they quite rightly identified that the 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 people under increasingly more and more kind of pressure. 
and McDonald's was a release from that pressure. So, but they didn't really, they wanted to explore that in much more kind of depth. So what we did is we looked at what we call sod it moments. What, what, what are those moments when people just say, sod it, I'm going to kind of ha- kind of have a kind of McDonald's. So we wanted to create lots no, of those. For the listeners, sod it means damn it. Yeah, damn it. So it's like, damn it, I'm going to have a McDonald's. Yeah. So what what was that? And so we created lots of solid stories. Some of them were more kind of using film. So we got people to record their solid moments and we asked them to record it. So using kind of film, we captured loads of moments, whether it's the mum who's just dropped her kid off at the school gates and she just, she drives past McDonald's and just wants to have a break and escape from society and have a McDonald's on her kind of own. So to those much more kind of communal things, which were much more kind of powerful, where people kind of kind of kind of sharing. So what what we kind of identified then was that that it wasn't the solid moment. It wasn't at the point of consumption. The solid moment was at the point of suggestion. So we then really explored through ethnography and film and evaluation what were those kind of moments. And a lot of it was kind of, it could be words like, yeah, I'm going to have a McDonald's or kind of, yeah, I'm just going to go and have a kind of, kind of, kind of McDonald's. But it was also much more unsuggested. So it was through body language. So it was the kind of wide eyes or the smiles or the, the kind of eyebrows kind of, kind of rose or that knowing look or the little nod. So we had all this amazing kind of footage and, the creators then took that and spotted that one of the things was the eyebrows that then connect to the arches. Fantastic. You so know, how, would, how would you, because I, I love that, and I've had that happen so many times throughout my career where where, where the power of film, I, I don't think we do enough in terms of reporting out and research. We need to be where it's appropriate, uh, bringing clips and film of results and less about talking about bullet points and more about showing what's happening. Yeah, so we had multiple people range. But, but what? Of, but what was your brief though? I mean, what the brief was find the sodded moments. That sounds a little vague, but I mean, what? So what exactly? We really understand those moments when people kind of say sodded. What's those kind of moments where people have that kind of release? What's that release from pressure, and how's that release? But but in essence, was it you know we have to explore those moments when people decide that they're going to have or, or what they're going to have for dinner or. So it's, it, it was a moment when they're thinking about McDonald's. So really getting close to that kind of kind of moment and understanding that that kind of moment Got it. And, and how that was a kind of release from pressure. And there we had a real diverse audiences from the young to the old, from ethnic minorities, LGBT. We covered the whole kind of bases and we had so much kind of film footage. And then we put that together Ian Murray from House Fifty One, myself, and and also Pete. But how would you do? How would you do that from an? How did you sort of operationalize that logistically? Were were people giving cameras? Were crews? Yeah. With people? So people, we 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 did two stages. So people, we removed we removed the researcher. So we gave them cameras, and then then we watched the videos, and we had we had a we had an interview with them after. So it's a double post, but it was really powerful because we could get close to the places where researchers are never going to be. Yeah. You're not going to be with them after they drop the kid off at the school gates and they, they kind of fancy McDonald's. You're not going to be it when they're at work and they're suddenly discussing to have a McDonald's or they're with their kind of family and they're discussing. They, they were the moments we just, we just, we could never ever reach without film. And it was so powerful. Film, like you said, is, is such a powerful kind of vehicle because it really brings to life those kind of moments and the language and the body language. And that was key because it wasn't so much what people said, it was it was the expression of how people said And so it. I'm just, because I'm super fascinated by this, did you, did you ask people to 
at the point when they're considering to then turn the camera on and capture the conversation yeah. or, yeah, yeah. or talk the to journey. the camera? The, the, the journey. So so when when we start thinking about McDonald's, how did you think and what are you thinking? What did you say? What did you do? How did you express it? Where did you have it? So there's multiple different kind of ways in to look at that kind of question. When you participate in a research study, whether you're a moderator in qual or you're um, you're a questionnaire writer in quant, whether you're an interviewer in ethnography, the the role, I mean, we all know that, and I think we all accept the fact, and we have to manage for it, is that we're by being there, we're creating a uh, a false environment, right? By being there, and it it is a skill, yeah, to be able to do that well and to recognize that you're in that environment, so therefore it's false. Therefore, there are certain things you have to ignore uh, that that are being created by your presence. And therefore, it may be creating answers or assumptions, um, and you bring your own bias to that situation. How do you filter out what's true uh, versus what's false? It's a fantastic question, and a really, really important question. When you look at anthropology, anthropology will say that the researcher is a problem. So I think we have to acknowledge that. People will react to you in a certain kind of way and people try and please you in a certain kind of way. I think there's several things that can kind of get around that. I think the the first thing is to understand what your kind of biases are. So, So kind of thinking about your biases deeply, thinking about what you think the hypothesis might be and then constantly kind of challenging that. I think it's about having a good team around you that have the sensibility to to challenge what you're saying to make sure that is kind of accurate. And we, we can talk later about how you kind of analyze. I think the other thing is about having time with people to make sure you really kind of understand who they are. So so I think the the the, the great thing about a semi-ethnographic approach is it gives you depth. It allows you to see the behavior. It allows you to see the interactions and the conversations that people are having. You're entering their world. And because you're entering their world, you can see the environs around it and what kind of constitutes to those kind of approaches. You can see their relationships with others. And generally, it can be a much more natural, relaxed environment. I think there's also... A great merit in kind of removing the researcher from the process. So I work a lot with a company called Peak, and one of the they're a film company, and they they do a lot of my film. And sometimes when you get people to generate their own content over a long time, you remove the research from that process. That can help as well. So I think there's there's I think there's lots of different ways to approach it. But I think the first thing is we have to challenge our own kind of biases. And so and I think that allows you to see things from a slightly different kind of perspective. So it, it seemed in the McDonald's assignment, you kind of went in 
with a hypothesis. You kind of had a sense of what you were after. And I'm curious, though, in other assignments, do we need to sort of keep the aperture a little bit wider? I mean, are there other aspects of identity that we need to capture uh, outside of the task at hand? For example, if you're doing a shopper assignment, um, do we just focus on the aspects of the identity that are, are that are part of that shopping experience, or do we need to broaden it out so that we're we're including broader senses of identity that aren't related necessarily directly to the task at hand? If we take disability, so I'm disabled, but disability is just a small part of my identity jigsaw. It's not the defining part. It's a big part, but it's not the defining part. And understanding those other layers of people are really important. So my fav favourite, well, it's not my favourite example because it's a horrible example, but I was doing some work around abuse and abuse of women. Uh, women and I remember interviewing this girl, we're called her Lacey, and she li lived in a, a housing estate and she'd been brought up in the care system and she'd been raped by, by, by a kind of step stepdad and she'd kind of been beaten and she had a ex-boyfriend that stole from her <laughs> and she had some kind of financial kind of problems sometimes and and it was it, you you would take those layers and and when when you looked at her her life was horrific and we can't take that away way in any shape or form and she there was a lot of kind of difficulties in her life but then we went I, she was such a fascinating person that i went back and i wanted to spend a day with her when I spent a day with her, I learned that she'd learned to play tennis because she'd been in foster care. She could play the piano. She loved historical dramas like Downton Abbey. Whenever she had spare money, she would take her child to 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 history music, to museums and historic kind of palaces. And you start to see a very different kind of side of that kind of person, which would have been missed in just doing an, an hour interview through through general kind of quality. One of the other big questions that this raises is the fact that are we do we need do we need a guy like you who does this kind of work because we don't have enough diversity in this industry? Why don't we have? I mean, well, that it's hard to answer the why, but I think it's the what. I mean, we don't have. We're a bunch of you know. Um, upper middle class people, uh, white people generally in this industry that are very well educated. We come from comfortable families for the most part or comfortable backgrounds for the most part. But yet we are assigned tasks to understand people that are not included in our ranks, which which just kind of begs the question, what's wrong with the industry uh, that we're, we haven't yet woken up to the fact that we need to have uh, more diverse voices in order to be able to work for brands that have more diverse audiences so i think there's two parts to this question so 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 i think there's the diversity part and then i think there's the industry failing part and i think the two are kind of interconnected if we take the diversity part absolutely so absolutely we need more diverse people so 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 that that kind of goes without saying we need people with different kind of experiences different kind of uh, voices coming from different cultures and different kind of cultural understanding. Sitting at the table with us, not being filtered through. Absolutely. At, at, at the table that really understand what's kind of going on and, and why that's kind of, kind of going on. And that, that's really, really important. And even though those people, sometimes you have to understand 
how much you can do and how much you can't do. So so I'm disabled and that allows, in a way, that's a superpower, yeah, because it disarms people and people want to work half me. So, so it's great when I do do research. <laughs> people want to work. Yeah, so it's fantastic. Yeah, so people so, want to uh, work harder for you. Is that what you said? Yeah, absolutely. They work a lot kind of kind of harder for me. They 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 what they want they want to open up. It opens people up. So so which which is which interesting, is, which, which is great. So 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 that's fantastic. But you know, even with my limitations, I have to understand. I don't. I've got physical disability, so that doesn't necessarily mean I understand people that are visually impaired or with a hearing impairment. I still have to work hard to get that kind of degree of kind of understanding. So I think that's one thing. I used to have a gambling problem, but I used to give cash to the bookmakers. I don't necessarily understand the world of online gambling problems and how people kind of gamble. I come from a working class background, but now I live in a nice house in Chichester, yeah? So, so I'm a bit distant. I come from a traveller family, but I haven't been on a traveller site for over 18 years. So even though I have an understanding, there's yeah, still limitations, but it is the way forward. And it's a question I wrestle a lot with, though. And the question why I wrestle with it is because I look at when advertising, I'm sounding old here, when advertising I felt was good, right? So I'm thinking of kind of the follow the bear ads, the Carling ads that used to, used to kind of be on telly, the 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 the, the Martian ads, etc. So these fantastic ads that really felt like people got culture, and yet a lot of those planners come from Oxbridge. So why were they so good? And I think they were just really curious and they're really good at insight, but also the creatives come from the post room. So I think that the creators, the creators what. Come from the post room, yeah. So they work their way out from the post oh, from room. the mail room, right? Yeah, right. yeah, from the mail room. So, so you had even within that system, you, you even within the same agency, you you had that cross fertilization of ideas. So you had a microcosm of different perspectives within an agency. Wasn't that sort of a, a world in advertising when it was very monocultural in its lens? Yeah. In, in what kind of sense? I mean, it, it it felt like there wasn't the diversity executed in those adver- those ads. There wasn't a, it wasn't really a reflection of of selling to a broader audience. It was like white people marketing to white people. At, well, see, I think I think that's an interesting question. So I think there's 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 a truth in that when you look at who people had on screen. Our, our classism is not it's not just an issue of ethnic diversity, but it's class diversity. But what what I think those people did is they understood the conversations that mass mainstream were having in the pub. So I think they helicoptered above and they made connection points that could join um, multiple audiences together and essentially generally make kind of people laugh. So 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 so, or they had insights that, that kind of diff- that could could really kind of resonate. So. I think they had a. I think in a way, they had a deep understanding of what connected multiple kind of audiences than perhaps we kind of do now. I think where we've kind of gone now is we're very, very kind of kind of come a very liberal, a very white, a very middle class world with absolutely no kind of diversity. And then I think there's other problems that have come into the industry. So I think we worship at the altar of ABC One. So we love ABC One. We love that upper middle class audience. We with our clients. What, what is it? What is ABC One, Steve? ABC ABC One is is a 
it's basically middle class and upper class audiences. So so those that are middle class and, and kind of wealthier, yeah. So we kind of we worship at those kind of audiences. So 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 we worship at that altar and and we think that is the audience, that our audience is often higher than it is. And I talk about you go to a shopping centre and you see working class audiences buying lots of products, yeah, but we don't think about them, right? I think the next thing we do is we believe that the world reflects us and what we wish for. So, so, so youth is a classic example of that, right? So all the Gen Z stuff that come through, it's like Gen Z are into diversity, Gen Z are into sustainability. And I've done a lot of work in this space and it's not as homogenous as that. So I remember doing do, doing lots of conversations and you've got different people within youth. You've got some that were actually moving away from diversity, unfortunately, and actually think it's become mainstream. And they're looking to people like Jordan Peterson, kind of toxic kind of masculinity. Then, then you had others that absolutely understood sustainability. They absolutely were pro-diversity. Then you had a big, big, big group in the middle, were, which were like, you know what? I want everyone to get on with the world. And I want people to be nice to animals and nice to kind of nature. But I don't think about it much. And I just want to kind of get my nails done. Yeah. So I think even within that audience, we 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 have we have different things. But because we want to project this is the world, we miss things. And then I don't know if, if you come across him in the in the United States, then someone like Andrew Tate comes along and talks about kind of toxic masculinity and a lot of middle class kids and working class boys, especially, are looking up to him. And people are like, what's going on? Yeah, people should read about that guy. That is an amazing story. Andrew Tate, right? T-A-T-E? I, I was I was talking about this three years ago, about how youth is moving, shifting back to traditionalism, because I was spotting it, and I, I was talking about it, and I, I could see those kind of patterns, and I could see that young boys were feeling kind of dis- disfranchised, and young boys were feeling kind of powerless, and young boys were looking at hardcore kind of pornography, yeah? So, 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 but, so, 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 you could see these frustrations boiling up and then then these things happen it's like oh my god where did that come from same as trump same as brexit you know brexit people weren't listened to for 20 years and then the whole industry was like oh my god i didn't see that coming that was an earthquake and the reason we have have an earthquake is because people aren't going out and having conversations and you can be upper class you can be middle class you can be whatever but you're not having the right conversations with the right people and you're not having regular conversations. Why is that happening? Is that a fault of of is is that a fault of quant studies, of research in general, where we've got these sort of legacy uh, structures within quant surveying and they're not flexible enough to pick up uh, pick pick up nuance? Or number two, the people in the databases, which was the which was sort of recognized as a huge issue during the the election of Trump and the polling that was going on around the election, that the issue was that the databases that they were using for sampling didn't include this broader audience, this sort of many in this mass sort of mainstream that you talk about. And it's the same over here. They weren't, their voices weren't even, they weren't even being contacted and asked for their opinions because they weren't in the database. I think there's several things. I think it's really, I think that, I think both those points are, are, are correct. I think the other other thing is, we we're living in our own bubbles yeah so 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 we'd be on facebook we'd be on instagram but it'd be people like us yeah so 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 we'll have our interests and the algorithms will show us content like us 
So we start to think the world around us is like us. And then we forget other kind of audiences in that contact. And I, I, I remember, I think it was, I think it was Leo Burnett. I think it was Russ Lidstone. It wasn't Russ Lidstone, it was Euros. And he used to make his planners go and stay with fishermen for the weekend. Yeah, he used to make them go and stay with coal miners the weekend. That's fantastic. Yeah? It is absolutely brilliant. That, 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 that's revolutionary for me. Yeah? And that was years ago. That allows you to see true kind of insights and really kind of understand people and what make people what makes people tick. And then I think it's a comfort zone. I think we don't like going outside our comfort zone. And actually, sometimes when you speak to the people at the margins, that allows you to understand the centre. So you talk a lot about in design. If you can eradicate issues for people with disabilities, then actually that's going to make everyone else's life. And I remember working with John Cohen. He's a fantastic, probably one of the, he's the next Hal Henry uh, planner. And he's kind of, kind of, he's just, he's just, he's just absolutely kind of brilliant. He, he was my boss and he taught me so much. And I remember we did a project for Unilever about women. And he's like, what we're going to do is we're going to speak it to people with ages and we're going to speak to transgender. This was, this was 15 years ago. We're, we're going to speak to sex workers. We're going to speak to women on estates. And through those, understanding the edges, we can start understanding the sense. What do you have to be careful of when you're interpreting uh, results? We will try and frame things often in a way where our biases will come forward. So when we think of the working class, we'll often start trying to paint a picture that their lives are dystopian, yeah? So, so that, so that then can inflect. So we like to think their lives are darkness and very, very difficult. And there's some truth in that, but there's some also, we're missing a lot of their points of lives and their pleasures in lives and, and who they are as a more rounded kind of being. So I think those are problems. I think often we come with a problem and a solution. So we're, we're trying to force a solution by identifying a problem. The classic example of that, and I see it so many times in advertising, it really, really kind of annoys me, is diversity space. So what we see in terms of the diversity space is what's the problem with that audience? And often we identify that problem correctly. So it would be bigger body women are really unhappy and there's a, there's a lot of fat shaming. Transgender are really kind of excluded by kind of society. Muslims are seen as kind of extremists. Disabled people are often kind of pitted by society. Lesbians are often seen as kind of butch and kind of manly. The problem what we then do is we jump into a forced dichotomy because we want to do the extreme. So what we do is we say disabled people are pitted, so we want to show them as superhumans. Lesbians are butch, so we want to show them as super pretty with kind of tattoos. Muslims are extremists, so we want to show them as happy kind of shopkeepers. The problem is... The audiences you, you're speaking to don't want to be taken into that extremity space. They just want to be kind of normalized and show a more rounded perception of who they are. Where ethnography can really do well, and this is this is this is this is for me a goldmine, is in diversity space, is ethnography can allow you to show the little things that say in an ad you really understand who I am. And this really the kind of Shrek example. So one of the wonderful things about Shrek is Shrek works on multiple levels. It works on a level that the parent and child can understand, and then it has the parent-only jokes. The best diversity campaigns for me 
would be and i can't there's very few examples of, of where this this kind of works but it'd be where you have you have you have an idea that those outside the diversity audience get and connect with but you have those little hidden codes where if you're in if you're a disabled person you're like you really get and understand me there's a really good example actually a virgin ad and it had a guy in a wheelchair that was dating so 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 an able-bodied woman and what that did it was a perfect love story that all audiences could connect with it tackled that idea that disabled people don't kind of date but it had the gaming and it had the little signifiers that are like you really understand my life as a, as a disabled person and i think that's really really important and i think we, we we the 15 i thought was a great example of what exactly Fantastic you're talking. Ad, yeah exactly yeah. that's that's another great ad that absolutely kind of nails it and i think that i think that that's where that's where it's kind of kind of being kind of kind of kind of clever let me ask you this because i i think um you've probably faced it everybody listening here has probably faced it at one at one point or the other it's it's then taking taking these findings from this type of work bringing it inside to an organization where you're outside of the marketing group and you're presenting it to product people, et cetera, and are other people that are a part of um, uh, making a decision about the implications of that work. How do you deal with the fact that a case can be made with, with ethnographic work of any form that it's not projectable, it's not quantifiable. And if you, if you're using, if you're basing the work on, you know, a series of one-on-one interviews, whether it's long format or short format, the fact that you're you're sitting with uh, a, a working from home dad uh, doesn't mean you know working home dads. I mean, every life is unique, as you've just said. How do you know that you've gotten the true spirit of that audience when that audience is so diverse in its life experiences? So you inform the process more. Uh, my my big argument is if you really want to um, if you really want to break the fishbowl and make sure you're not swimming in the same space as 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 your competitors, and you want something that's really new, different, and a positive. What do you mean? Tell, tell us more about that. Yeah. So 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 I think what what happens is people since swim in the same fishbowl. So so firstly, everyone doesn't go outside category. And actually, I think going outside category is is, is a really interesting argument because you get locked into kind of category. I think everyone will probably be doing similar questions on a quant questionnaire. This is an example, so I don't know. If, but if you looked at Unilever and you looked at P&G, they'll probably be asking the same questions in the same format, in the same groups, with the same audience getting the same answers. Then they'll probably be, you'll be doing a lot of kind of Google planning, reading the same reports, the same same desk research, getting the same answers. So the culmination of that is you and your competitors are going to get exactly the same answers. So you're going to go into exactly the same spaces. The, the classic example of that is cost of living crisis. It's one thing I go on about all the time. Cost of living crisis. You do your groups, you do your quant, you do all these things. And what what most agencies will come back with is the emotional space we need to play into is care that we're on the side of the consumer most consumers you speak to firstly they're not thinking about your brand in much depth secondly they're like you know what i've been shopping with you for 15 years and now you're telling me you're on my side 
you should be on my side. I'm going through a cost of living crisis, right? It's a hygiene factor. What people want more is a restoration of other emotional spaces like joy, because my life's a bit down and I kind of want brighter shades of light coming into my life. Hope, because I feel powerless and I don't know how to navigate a really kind of complicated world. And pride, because this is impacting my self-confidence. So I want my pride restored. So <clears throat> straight away, your fishbowl will tell you, you've got to be say, I'm a bank, I'm a retailer, I'm on your side, I'm looking after you. Actually, you're just sort of swimming in the same spaces. Interesting. So it's it's really, a, so at the end of the day, it's bringing a, a, an increased level of understanding, but it's bringing a different perspective that can be used to sort of jet fuel uh, yeah, what you're doing creatively and strategically. So it's not about it being right or projectable nationally. It's about the fact that it's interesting and it's different and it it's it's connecting with real human experiences. Exactly. So you're you're capturing people. You're capturing people's lives in in the right moment, the right time, right place, which will allow you to unlock different kind of insights. And even if it's not their life experience, they can relate to it. Yeah, they can relate to it. And then when you blend that with cultural cultural expert interviews, you get a really, really rich kind of picture. And one of the things, one of the things I do, I remember I was I was working with a freelancer and I, I did a debrief. And she's like, Steve, you break every research rule of how to write a debrief, yeah? Because <laughs> I love it. It's like because your debriefs are kind of long. And I'm like, yeah, my debriefs are long, but there's lots. I use a lot of verbatims in there, a lot of film and a lot of different elements. And and she's like, yeah, but I love it. And creatives love it. And the amount of time, this is rare, yeah, because creatives don't usually like research, but the amount of times creatives we, uh, have come back to me and they've just said, you know what? I read through your debrief and this one quote of what someone said has just really kind of jumped out on me. And I'm like, wow, that's interesting. I can now jump. And I think that's really, really important. It's uh, Stephen Lacey. It's, uh, found, he's founder of The Outsiders. They're based in London. You can connect with Steve on, uh, on LinkedIn. It's S-T-E-V-E-N-L-A-C-E-Y. And the uh, URL, give us the URL again, Steve. It's, it's uh, outsiders with an S, insight, one word, dot com. What an awesome, he described, I love the way you described the group too. You, you talk about yourselves as a bunch of misfits, shaking up insights, cultural understanding, and the wisdom of the crowd. What a pleasure, man. Thank you so much for doing this. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. It's been fantastic. Thank you. And we'll see everybody on the next episode.